0: Benny. And this is learn
1: real good. We did it. We did the podcast we intro. We did the
0: podcast intro. The first two, you know, I think I got it started on the wrong words, and that threw the whole thing off. And we, last episode, we yeah. were like, we threw the whole thing off. out the window. Something's off. Yeah, we didn't know what.
1: We got a lot of letters. <laughs>
0: yes people were mailing us dear Vinny and katie why can't you do this very simple intro correctly why don't you just listen to one of the previous 30 episodes and listen to how you do it yeah
1: I love your intros. Why do you keep changing it? That's one of the letters.
0: Yeah, yeah. I only listen to the intros and then I turn off the show. I hated that
1: last episode where you messed up the intro.
0: I proposed to my wife by playing a series of intros. And when I heard that last one, she divorced me.
1: I'm unsubscribed from your (laughs) podcast after hearing that last intro.
0: There was a lot of letters. There was
1: a lot of letters.
0: So uh, I'm glad instincts crept back in. Yeah. And we nailed it. Perfect. Should we call it a day?
1: Uh, I think people want more than that for the podcast. Some oh. some listeners like more than the intro. What
0: is this show, Vinny? Well, it's
1: a podcast right. that combines science communication and comedy. It's our sci comedy podcast. Sci com com. Yeah, because you know, Katie and I both have a background in science and a background in comedy, and we figured, hey, why not make a podcast about both?
0: Yeah, as so we start the show by shooting the breeze, yep. which is what we are doing now.
1: <laughs> Good. Glad We're you clarified share some,
0: that. Share some facts. We're so yep. gonna introduce our guests. We have a great I guest. I love it. Uh today. can't
1: wait to hear what they have to say.
0: Yeah, so what's new with you, Vin? Let's shoot the breeze.
1: Uh, I'm I've mostly just been reading letters to the podcast. <laughs> just like wading through the room fulls of letters. What
0: real things are new, Vinny?
1: uh i'm getting over a sore throat you are i am yeah i wonder if
0: the listeners can tell that you're my rasp i was gonna say your milky creamy voice that's not what we milky say milky
1: creamy voice <laughs> how do you
0: describe a good voice like silky smooth?
1: Smooth. Silky smooth silky smooth Not yeah. milky creamy. yeah silky smooth is how you order your coffee <laughs> could i have a silky smooth coffee please Two do you smokes, mean do three. you mean milky creamy no i mean silky smooth <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
0: voice. I'm, smooth I'm,
1: I'm getting over. Silky. I got a little scratchy throat, but I'm yeah. okay. I'm, you know what, the de- the listeners demand podcast material, and I'm here to provide it.
0: I shared a story with you that uh, so I have two older siblings, mm-hmm. and uh, when I was really little, you know, the best thing I could do was get attention from
1: them, right, and yes.
0: impress them and have something to say. But I was a little kid. I was yeah, that has kid. that has changed completely. You're not,
1: changed. you don't do a lot of things for now attention.
0: I know that's why I have a podcast with a name on it. Um. <laughs> And speaking about voices, milky, creamy voices, I got bronchitis. (laughs) Right. uh, And I wasn't too sick. So it was actually awesome because I got to this school. I got a lot of attention. Mm. And the best part was I sounded like Marge Simpson. (laughs)
1: Like the bronchitis caused your voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And my siblings thought it was so funny. They'd get me to say all sorts of things. And I was like secretly... May the bronchitis never end.
1: You wanted bronchitis like to be permanent.
0: I probably also got some sweet, sweet banana medicine. Remember that stuff? Oh yeah, sure. That was the best.
1: Wow. That's
0: Simple Pleasures. You
1: wishing for bronchitis is
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, quite a yeah. terrible take on what life was like. Anyway, <laughs> um, now that we've shot the breeze, shall yes. we share some facts? I
1: love science facts.
0: Vinny, get us facts started.
1: Um well, this is I've been I've been wondering oh, no. how to improve approach this fact with you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's gonna actually be quite fun. So Katie, oh God. what do you know about urinals?
0: <laughs> I know they're a great place to find cakes.
1: <laughs> right, yeah.
0: Um, you know what? Very little. I know what they look like, sort of rectangular things. Mm-hmm. There's sometimes a blue urinal cake for, sure. I guess, the smell. It is the smell. Because I know men's bathrooms are disgusting, and that's where you find urinals typically. Uh, there's water, I think, on constantly running. You don't flush it. Them, depends.
1: Do you? Okay, don't do it depends. They don't do that anymore on to save one okay, water. Okay.
0: It was the 80s when I saw a urinal. Correct. Um, and you pee in them. <laughs> yep. And in public, which yeah. blows my mind. And uh, they just go about your day. Hopefully, you wash your hands. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Urinals, very Did I cover functional. You things. got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, as you are correct, uh, a lot of these uh, bathrooms, uh, people who use urinals, mm. uh, they can be messy because of the splashing. Mm. So, those cakes that you talk about, it, those chemicals in urine that stink if you let them dry. That's so, insane. sometimes, if uh, for the listeners out there who've seen urinals with ice in them, what? Yes, sometimes bars instead of buying cakes have an ice machine. so it's cheaper to pour ice in there to prevent the smell because it's not just the chemical but it's the temperature of the chemical. This is a
0: disgusting. Fact. It
1: doesn't smell when when it's <laughs> cold, so the, some bars just put ice in the urinals to re- produce, reduce the smell.
0: Okay, hot piss, worse piss? Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. Now, <laughs> urinals, they also they're they're weird receptacles. They're like these giant <laughs> Like you say, rectangular, personal yeah, yeah, things yeah, yeah. that sit on the wall. People pee in them. Uh, and the reality is it can get messy. It's splat, can gross. get splashy. The floors get disgusting. Get your shit together, penis havers. Sorry, everybody. It's it's gross. They're gross. They're gross things. Just It's a bathroom, right? Bathrooms are gross in general. But here's the okay. new, hot new science.
0: Okay. Hot new science.
1: People have developed a new urinal. Oh, stop hot it. Hot new me. urinal, uh, hopefully to drop at some point. It, it's has to do the splashing has to do with the angle at which the stream uh, okay. meets the uh, okay. uh, porcelain, yeah. and so one of the ways to reduce mess and it you know it saves cleaning it lower saves. Lower urinals. Uh, it's not lower. Higher actu- urinals. It's <laughs> kind of both. They're longer and skinnier. No. Than the regular urinal that oh, you can no. picture, so it's kind of like a like a mini canoe <laughs> that's mounted to the wall. So okay. it's like tall and skinny. Yeah. Uh, and this, the walls of it are calculated to be a specific angle to minimize splashing. Wow. Which previously hasn't really been done. And guess what they use to model this shape?
0: Ooh, a canoe. No. Okay. It's
1: a thing that occurs in nature. It's a nautilus a shell. Oh.
0: A nautilus shell? Yeah.
1: So the the curves and angles of a nautilus shell are angled to pr- like produce the same result, but Obviously, to a different means. Who's pissing but in a w- nautilus w- well, the scientists have to do their research. They grabbed a bunch of yeah, nautilus I. shells and they peed in them. Which
0: one was the best to pee? Yeah, yeah, the exactly. Nautilus.
1: And they're like, and they just stuck it to idea. the wall and then yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> ran it to the, the okay. sewer. No, uh, so it's this long, tall urinal that has this like specific curvature to it based on a nautilus shell.
0: I am picturing a nautilus, giant nautilus shells it,
1: on, on yeah, walls. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a good, that's a close-up. So what does the
0: curvature do? It traps the. It PNC? just prevents
1: the the angle of the incidence of the stream. Splashing back out, it like curves it into the into the Scientists receptacle. Scientists have done it. Scientists have done it. Yeah, you I know? mean the, there have been a bunch of like trials, and they figured the nautilus shell curvature is the optimal design for a urinal.
0: I got a personal question. For yes, you. Vinny, yes, do you please. use? Would are Do you think? Men would be divided on, like, I'm a urinal guy, like, sure. when I'm in a public bathroom, yeah, people I am who use urinals, urinal. yeah, or is it sort of willy nilly, you just pick whatever's free? What do you think uh, most people would do? I, it's the
1: ease of use you of a yours. urinal is pretty great, yeah. You yeah, use it, you yeah. would use a urinal, I, I regularly
0: use Even urinals? If, if there's people around.
1: Yeah, it's as a as a, someone who uses urinals, it's it's something you just get used to.
0: Cuz to me, just the toilet stall seems to come a lot from more the privacy, places. yeah. Interesting.
1: It's just it's just I guess I'm I'm socialized to be used to it.
0: I mean, good for you. <laughs> you would not guess. use a urinal? I would never use a urinal. No. No, no, no. No, no. no. All right,
1: good to know. Uh, That's my science fact. You learned a
0: lot about us more than you wanted to know, listeners. For sure. There's going to be more letters coming in. (laughs) I can't believe I would have put 20 bucks down Vinny was a a toilet man. Um,
1: (laughs) I'll get that t-shirt, Vinny the toilet man. Great fact. Thank you.
0: Happy to know there's been some development in that area <laughs> for Seattle's next umbrellas. Yeah. That's another tech that I yeah. feel like is desperate need of an update.
1: I can't wait to hear about it.
0: Okay, well that's not my fact. Oh, Vinny, if you were to describe rats in a couple of words, what would those <laughs> words be?
1: <laughs> rats.
0: I also. It's funny. Yeah. I also struggled with how to introduce. Yeah,
1: yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, vermin. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, squeaky.
0: They are squeaky. We'll come back to that.
1: Yeah. Squeaky vermin.
0: Yeah. That's okay. That's okay. You sure. asked me for two words, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. More personality traits, maybe. Oh, personal.
1: Oh, character. Like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. That rat is uh, so. Sassy. <laughs> sassy.
0: <laughs>
1: they're real sassy. They're real. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, a, a persistent.
0: Have you heard about them being good pets? No. Rats make extremely good pets. Oh, I heard
1: they're smart.
0: They're very smart. Okay. They're very playful. They have personalities. Okay. They show affection. Oh. They're, they're supposedly really great pets.
1: Oh.
0: This is all a, a way of saying rats are very playful. Okay. And this is a study of play. Okay. Which I knew would interest Yeah, me. Not no, so I'm not so much interested. the rats. We no. are big rat fans in this house, but um, <laughs> play. So, this is a study that used rats. In a in a nice way, you'll Mm -hmm. see to study what parts of the brain are activated by play. Ooh! So what the study shows is that a particular area called the PAG, the peg, not for me, um, standing for the periaqueductal gray. Never heard of it. Sure. Part of your brain, apparently, it lights up. It's a very specific, like two runways in this part of the brain uh, when they're playing. And the scientists who did this study to see what parts of the brain would line up did two forms of play. Okay. This is the adorable part yeah, of okay. it. where Yeah, play Card games and video games. <laughs> they would play chase the hand, <laughs> where the rat would chase the researcher's hand around and uh-huh. make a squealing sound, which is their sign of glee and okay. joy, like a dog wagging its tail. Oh, little squeaky. Uh, yeah, exactly. They'd, sque- they'd play chase the hand and tickle they love being tickled rats
1: love being tickled they love being tickled wow love
0: that shit so they they realized that in the study that that part of the brain uh, was very much lit up and it's not just because they're active because it it, they do the same thing with being tickled or chased so covering those two different forms Mm -hmm. of play compelled them to believe that this is really important okay so to really be sure of it What they did was they developed rats that were. I'm trying to also find the research at the same time here. (laughs) Uh, They genetically altered the cells in that PAG part of the brain of some rats to be turned off when exposed to light. And so they would prevent those neurons from firing. Oh, this is a sad story for these rats. Well,
1: science needs them.
0: I know. And they would try to play. They wouldn't play. Uh, they wouldn't play chase the hand. This is heartbreaking. They wouldn't, they wouldn't laugh when tickled.
1: This is too sad for me.
0: Um, <laughs> but it's really strong evidence that this is the part of the brain that's responsible. Wow. For so who cares? Well, um, they're hoping that, you know, rats aren't terribly different right. from humans. We have similar neurons going on in our brain that if you can sort of understand this zone that is being triggered by play that makes you want to play that releases Happy hormones when you do play. Yeah. That people who have, say, depression, right? You know, that's perhaps a part of the brain to target.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, playing rats.
1: Yeah, that's really cute. And
0: it was really cute because the study really appreciated that play is important. You know, right. and that's something we talk we about as that. improvisers all the time. Right? It's yeah. not something that's just a childish. No. Pastime. It is important for adults. Yeah, it's important, and these the scientists were arguing that's important for things like resilience. Hmm. resilience to change being being playful adaptable allows you to be more adaptable and flexible and how that's all very useful stuff for everyone
1: yeah rats included rats included. good job rats good well job. now i know about rats and pets but i didn't can know you
0: imagine that. doing this study where your job was to tickle rats tickle rats yeah and gotta go into work today record their glee sounds oh uh, yeah because i would love that job
1: i would play chase the hand <laughs> and i would squeak i would giggle like a <laughs> mouth right.
0: well we have our evening planned after this recording um that's a fact
1: amazing very cool thank you katie
0: yeah well well thank you for your fact and we're facted out yeah that's out of fact. fact that's a fact that's a fact it is time for us to uh, can we
1: bring our guests in please
0: yes what what do you think i was about to say vinnie
1: let's to, play chase the hand let's play chase the head. okay after first, right.
0: our guest this week is dorothy lynn Dorothy Lynn is a recent Master's of Science graduate in Medical Genetics at the University of British Columbia. Her research is focused on leveraging data from large cohorts to statistically model the associations between environmental chemicals and the epigenome. Mm, a lot of big words in that yeah. we'll have to dive into parse that one. with our guest, Dorothy Lynn. Come hey, on Dorothy. Down. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for yeah, being here. welcome
1: to Learn Real Good.
0: <laughs> so, Dorothy, let's start with the epigenome. I know what the genome is, for those who don't know. It's like the whole all the information in your DNA, right. you know, not one recipe, it's the whole recipe the whole package. book and all the other DNA that isn't recipes. What is the epigenome,
2: Dorothy? Yes. Right, so epi means on top. And so yeah. essentially what epigenome um, is referring to is anything that is on top of your genome. So when we are born or when we are conceived, we have our entire DNA sequence that's made up of our nucleotides so your a t g and c and throughout your entire life you can't change that Mm. sequence unless Mm. of course we go through mutations from the environment for example but a lot of times you're not going to change that sequence in every single cell of your body so once you're born you're stuck with that Um, However, throughout your life, you may come across challenges in the environment. Um, For example, some individuals may be experiencing famine or Mm -hmm. childhood abuse. And there are times when your body needs to have long-term adaptations to your environment. But in some cases, we can't just take our genes and change them. We have to find a way to alter how our body is producing proteins and in what amount without changing that sequence and that's where the epigenome comes in Hmm. um so these are essentially chemical modifications that can be added or removed from your dna and they can change how your proteins are transcribed so one example Hmm. is the lactase gene so we often need that lactase to digest our milk sugars when we're babies but once you grow older and you're not drinking your breast milk anymore you have to find a way to stop producing that protein because there's no reason for your body to keep making these proteins and breaking it down if you're not drinking milk and so epigenetic modifications can come in and silence that gene So that you're not producing that protein for the rest of your life Hmm. without a purpose. So what are some types of
0: modifications? Like I imagine there's things that the modifications that would make your dna harder to access so you make less of that stuff and some modifications that would make it easier to access can you give us (laughs) this is i know going to get technical but could you
2: explain in words we would understand (laughs) what some examples are that's an awesome question because there are a ton of different epigenetic modifications Mm
1: -hmm. and because
2: of this this field is very large like epigenetics is not just talking about one mark so the first and most commonly studied mark in humans is something called DNA methylation and so DNA methylation is the addition of a methyl group Um, if you're familiar with a methyl group it's just the addition of a small little methyl group onto our cytosine bases and these cytosine bases are found in these cytosine guanine pairs inside our genome. So in the promoters of our genes, which basically control how much protein we're making, we see a lot, a lot of um, CPG sites all stacked together and DNA methylation is essentially controlling whether or not a gene is transcribed from that little CPG island area. And then on top of DNA methylation, we have the modifications that may not be stuck directly onto our DNA. So these are the marks that are stuck onto the chromatin, or like the actual proteins, the histones. The histone marks are essentially chemical additions onto the tails of these proteins that our DNA is wrapped around. So instead of our DNA existing as a loose long string in our body, they're actually wrapped around these proteins like little balls of yarn. And based on what type of marks are stuck onto the tails of these proteins, it can either be looser or more compact. So things like our telomeres, which are at the end of our chromosomes, those are very, very compact um, under normal circumstances. So they're wound very tightly around these proteins, while your genes that are always being transcribed in your body, those are wound very loosely so that you can easily access them at all times and depending on your needs for the moment this can change depending on that as
0: well wow yeah so we can add methyl groups to our dna we can add scrap to our histones or the proteins our dna is wrapped around to make it easier or less accessible why first with the methyl groups this is a question i've always had
1: Hang on, I'm going to back up one more. No, no, I'm going to back up even more because I'm not sure I followed all of that. Okay, sorry, go ahead. So basically, there's parts of DNA that make our proteins and the proteins are used to like make cells or parts of our cells and things like that. Yeah. And what's happening in the environment can make things stick to our DNA or parts of our DNA to make them work or not work or make proteins or not make proteins. Does that sound right?
2: Yeah, essentially. Yeah.
1: Great. It, Thank you. Yeah,
2: there's a lot more nuance to it, but right. essentially it's it's partaking in that genetic transcription regulation. Cool. Mm-hmm.
0: So a methyl group Whenever we introduce functional groups in my biology class, the methyl group is always like the least sexy. You know, it's like, oh, whoopee woo, a carbon with three hydrogens, let's move on to the carboxyl groups, now we're talking. So why is it that one carbon with a couple of hydrogens can have such an effect? Why why, why does that do anything?
2: Right, that's a really good question as well. And that's something that is talked about in um, DNA methylation studies because we are often looking for certain CBGs, those certain sites within the genome that are differentially methylated. And when we are trying to pull away the functional part of this, so trying to understand what the function of that change is, it's really hard to tell without actually changing that single group and seeing the function. And so one of the big ideas and a really good potential step with methylation studies is that it would be really beneficial to change a lot of these CPG groups that are together because that's when things are actually impactful. So as I was saying earlier, we have a lot of these CPG sites all stacked together in the promoter of a gene. So one methylation group may not be making that big of a difference, but if you have the entire promoter that is methylated or completely unmethylated, that's what can make a difference. Because once you have so many methyl groups back together, that's when you may be starting to um, have changes to the DNA structure or those DNA methylation groups can also be signaling to other biological factors that may read um, these signals and then come in and make it more inaccessible or accessible because it's actually Mm -hmm. not a one-to-one ratio at all yeah
1: so it's not actually changing the dna because as you said like when you're when you're conceived the, your dna is going to be your dna short of any mutations right and so these methyl groups are caused like kind of environmentally present or not present and they come in and like just affect how that dna gets expressed in our bodies said, yeah and and not just like one like you're saying like there's a, it takes a bunch of them to do any real right. functional difference
3: mm-hmm. totally.
1: okay cool yeah, I'm just making sure I get this.
0: No,
3: you. <laughs> I'm can't.
1: not. I'm not the biologist here. You
0: totally got it. <laughs> so, who's adding these methyl groups? Is yeah, it is an, it
1: someone named methyl? Is
0: it an enzyme that, like, oh, time to put the methyl groups? Like, <laughs> <laughs> how does it get there?
2: That is actually what it is. Um, so, there are three different types of enzymes and i may be missing some just as a disclaimer but dna methyl transferase so transferring our methyl groups on those are the enzymes that put the methyl groups on and so there i don't exactly remember which one does what but some of them are involved in maintaining a certain pattern across your genes Um, And every time a cell divides, it's in charge of maintaining that pattern. And then the other types are in charge of creating new patterns. So patterns of DNA methylation that are not there. And this is really important during development because something really interesting that happens when you're a zygote is that all of your DNA methylation marks get erased completely so yeah when you're like a small little zygote everything gets erased and then your methylation patterns are put on again from scratch and like a reboot yeah it's like a complete reboot and that's actually a really controversial topic in epigenetics of whether things can be transmissed across generations because of this complete
1: Mm. reboot
2: right yeah
1: That's cool. So, I like, basically the thing that I'm getting is that these methyl groups act as a volume knob on DNA.
2: Essentially, yeah, they're a volume knob. And that's why even though we have millions and billions of cells in our body and every single cell has the exact same genetic code, we have liver cells, skin cells, stomach lining cells. We have so many different types of cells. And this is because of your epigenome because it mm. tells the cell what type of cell it is and then regulates which proteins are expressed. Right.
1: So it turns up, the like on my hair, it turns up the volume. Well, back when I was younger and I had hair. Yeah. <laughs> it turned up the volume on my hair, on the hair parts of my DNA and turned down the volume on all the other parts.
0: Exactly.
3: Okay,
1: cool. What? So that's my epigen- epi- epigenome.
0: Yeah. So you have like a methyl transferase that puts the methyl on the DNA. Who tells the methyl transferase to do it? Like, where's the connection between the stimuli from the environment and the body? Like, where does it where does the body start, man?
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. So DNA methylation is a constitutive process that happens, which means that it's always happening. Hmm. And it's also essential for life, for human life, (laughs) because without it, we wouldn't be able to maintain our cell diversity and because of that things that we eat in our diet such as folate those groups those methyl groups from that folate and our vitamins they are essentially always in this balance with that dna methyl transferase and always replenishing our dna methylation and i can also go into another reason why dna methylation is so important here so as you might know um for the longest time we thought that more than like 50 percent of our dna was junk dna because it was repetitive sequences Mm
3: -hmm. and
2: we've recently found out that that's not true and that all of these sequences are transposable elements which means that they are essentially dna fossils from um, when we had viral infections in our ancient dna and because of that these elements can actually jump around our genome freely so they can move around and that's a risk for cancer because it can cause genome instability. So DNA methylation, a lot of it exists to uh, um, suppress these elements Ah. that can jump around our genomes. So that's where a lot, most of our DNA methylation is actually stuck to these transposable elements. Uh And because of that, it's just kind of like an evolutionary trait that we are methylating these elements because without it then you would have a lot of genome instability and wow. wouldn't be evolutionarily beneficial. So I I'm sure there are other factors that may be telling the DNA methyl transferase to methylate things, but of what I know, I think that a really big part of it is an evolutionary advantage. Mm-hmm.
1: And so when you talked about folate and like your diet, being able to produce, have the material in your body to make these methyl groups. If you're missing that, you can't, maybe you can't methylate stuff properly. And your body is like, I need to make these changes or suppress this part or make respond to the environment in this way. But if your body doesn't have the building blocks to do it, it doesn't do that. And so then you're kind of screwed.
2: Right, yeah. And there are a lot of studies out there about folate and DNA methylation. Um, but from what I know, which is a scarce understanding, cellular studies that have like doused cells in folate have actually not seen any DNA methylation changes, even though it is a really important part of the pathway. Um, that being said, I believe that infants who are very, very depleted in folate have been shown to a variety of neurodevelopmental Mm
3: -hmm. um,
2: abnormalities Um, however I don't really know the DNA methylation link on that so I just know that folate is important but the cellular studies that have looked at that are a little more inconsistent
1: really cool and so what is your research with all of this
2: right yeah so what i particularly look at is social epigenetics or that's what my lab works on so a lot of My lab is looking at childhood or the prenatal period and how environmental exposures may be changing those DNA methylation patterns Mm. within our genome. And specifically, I was looking at epigenetic age, which is... A more recent development of measuring your age in a biological way.
1: Hmm. Interesting. First
0: question on that. So what are some environmental chemicals that affect the epigenome?
2: Yeah. um, One of the most studied chemicals from our environment is smoking, for Mm. And smoking is a big one that has been shown to have both DNA methylation changes at singular sites within the genome, but it has also been shown to accelerate the biological age of adults who are longtime smokers. So that is one chemical exposure that has been shown. And more social exposures that have been associated in the literature includes adverse childhood experience. So this could be childhood abuse or growing up in a very low socioeconomic status. So Mm -hmm. one paper from my lab had investigated children who grew up in a low socioeconomic status in Cebu in the Philippines and they compared that to children who grew up in a high socioeconomic status. And then they also compared this to later life measures. So they had four groups in total, so low socioeconomic status to low, and then low to high in adulthood, and then high to low and low to high. And what was interesting was that the individuals who had low to high socioeconomic status, their DNA methylation changes didn't really shift over time. So it was more similar to the low, low group. Um, Meanwhile, the high, high group and the high to low group they were more resistant to those more Mm. at-risk DNA methylation changes that had to do with inflammation and so it really highlighted how that early life period is that sensitive is a lot more sensitive to environmental challenges compared to that later life period which is interesting. Wow
0: so do we know why things like what sounds like stress really why stress during development would have like why is that a thing versus joy like why would stress affect dna epigenetics
2: yeah i mean that's a really good point that highlights how a lot of our research is focused on that almost negative (laughs) side of things like why do we have these diseases how are how stress related to things and we have a lot less research about you know does joy um have some type of change so i think in the literature in general it is a little hard more hard to compare whether we have very joy associated dna methylation changes Mm -hmm. just because people are less interested Looking Mm -hmm. at that when the going's good. Yeah.
1: Have they tried tried playing chase the hand?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Might help. Exactly. We could do it. Tickling epigenetics. Yeah. (laughs) It would be interesting, but I think you make a really good point about stress because I think in general we know that stress is correlated with higher levels of cortisol, and cortisol I think I guess is like a steroid hormones and high levels that can have adverse effects during development, especially during the prenatal period. Um, that being said, I don't know a ton about cortisol effects, sure. so I can't speak too much on that, but <laughs> I would imagine that those hormones being out of whack can definitely be something that can affect the child. Additionally, some children who are experiencing those adverse Experiences may need to adapt neurodevelopmentally. Now I'm just digging into my like undergraduate psychology quizzes <laughs> <laughs> and like I don't want to say anything I'm not sure of. But one example is like my postdoc, she studies attachment style and how that can be reflected in your epigenetics.
3: <laughs> Fascinating.
2: Right. And so attachment style is one example of that adaptive mechanism. If your parent is not consistent in their affection, and whether they are a safe place for you to go back to when you're a child, your brain has to adapt its internal working model to kind of cope with that inconsistency. Hmm. And that has been shown to persist in adulthood and how individuals build their relationship. And so because of that, (laughs) this type of relationship or um, model in your brain may also be reflected in your epigenetics.
0: I had no idea that attachment styles. So Mm -hmm. are we at the point where... We could take the DNA, like take a gene. Okay, here, here's my, my experiment idea, Dorothy. Uh, we took <laughs> yeah. some genes from a bunch of different people mm. and we took a magnifying glass. We counted the methyl groups. Mm. Could we look at the epigenetics of individuals and correlate that with attachment style? Like are we at that level of resolution or we're we just starting to notice patterns between these things?
2: Totally. Um, so... The most common way and the most high throughput, which means high throughput just means a lot of information, like a method that okay. gives you a lot of information. So the most high throughput method of measuring DNA methylation across our genome right now is something called the, um, epic feed chip, and this is
3: Made Great by name.
2: Illumina. Yeah, it sounds kind of delicious, actually. The <laughs> <laughs> and it consists of eight hundred and fifty thousand probes on this tiny, tiny little chip. And so, basically, what that means is that it measures the DNA methylation levels at eight hundred and fifty thousand sites within someone's genome
3: okay even
2: though that sounds like a lot um the reality is that we have 30 30 million cpg sites in the genome okay so eight hundred and fifty thousand actually only covers around three percent wow wow yeah so it's really hard to interrogate the entire genome that being said the eight hundred fifty thousand gives us the good idea and it captures quite a bit of genes across the genome and so when we're measuring these sites we can make assumptions like oh the differential methylation at one site is probably closely linked to the levels at other sites that are nearby so we're like assuming that all like maybe three or four sites that are beside that tpg site that we measured might be around this DNA methylation level and so that's actually a really active um, part of research right now and Mm -hmm. my colleague Eric, he is actually creating a package right now in our studio and it essentially helps you estimate what the DNA methylation levels are in certain groups across the Mm genome. Right,
1: Right. sounds like uh, political polling so like you don't need to (laughs) ask everybody what they're going to vote for, you're just going to sample Enough of the people to get a, within a certain percentage of error.
2: Totally. Yeah. It's like just sampling that little bit. But that's one of the highest throughput ones. And it's really amazing how far things have come because back in like 2015, we were sampling around 27,000. So it has gone okay. up to 850,000. That's the amazing. Gold standard. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing.
1: And so different people are looking at different, like, there's like a million factors that you could go down of like socioeconomic uh, pathways of like you know how do they grow up financially? How do they grow up? Uh, do they grow up rural or urban? Uh, like, and how does that affect methylation? This feels like a, like a infinite field that could <laughs> there has a lot of real interesting potential to to show like you know how socioeconomic factors really have a literal physical impact on our bodies it's
2: a huge it's like a huge fan pit and it really just never stops um and so that's actually something i was thinking about when um katie shared the fun fact about rats because one thing we always talk about is like okay should we look at dna methylation and human populations where we have so many variables we can look at socioeconomic status we can look at how they were fed growing up or like how they were parented we have so many variables that we can look at and then on the flip side with animals it's like you can isolate for example the playing aspect so one of my um the phd students in my lab she was looking at mice who had an enriched environment where they basically had a bunch of toys in their cage versus rats that had a normal normal environment which is kind of like a depleted cage with no toys at all and that mm-hmm. in that way you're really isolating the environment right. and then in the human case it's obviously more generalizable to us because we're biologically more similar and it's more similar because it's real world data but right. uh, in that case we have so many variables that we can look at and but it's a really big part of research now where we have cohorts that are being followed over decades mm-hmm. um, and they bring these, these children and these families back throughout the years to redo these surveys and like, wow. keep asking about how they're doing or like taking biological measures. It's, it's a really advantageous part of research right now, I think.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Tong.
2: I'm Sam. And I'm Laura.
1: And we are...
2: Disney, Disney dummies! dummies!
1: Look, we know there are Disney super fans out there, but even the superest of fans could still be Disney
0: dummies.
2: That's why the three of us are on a quest to watch every single animated theatrical release in chronological order. From Snow White all the way to... Out right now, we dive into each movie in detail, talking about fun facts, talking about the animation, hit you with some hot takes, our favorite reviews on the internet.
1: We even talk about who bucks. I still
0: can't believe that's an actual segment.
2: So join us every second Wednesday for another episode of Disney Dummies and Pixar Pals. When we finally catch up, yeah, yeah.
3: brought to you by the fairy tale whimsical
0: depths of the Pod Cavern. You mentioned Dorothy that there's a area of epigenetics that's looking to see how things are passed between multiple generations and how that seems somewhat paradoxical because of that wipe. Mm-hmm. One, one can help but wonder if like something like intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. right, is something that could we'll see one day is coded on our epigenetics. Right. How do we? At this point, I, I know it's a, a debatable subject, but how do people explain how it's possible given that wipe? Do you, do you know of some arguments for how things can pass that far?
2: Yeah, um, there are actually quite a few papers, because this is a really polarizing topic in mm-hmm. um, especially because of that wipe. So some like to argue that, you know, there is intergenerational transmission and I personally feel like there needs to be more concrete evidence for this. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I could see that evidence working is if you are truly extracting a zygote throughout every day, of gestation is see okay are these patterns from the mother or the father being actually being passed down from the parent right. to the child because without that it really could just be that the mother grew up experiencing low socioeconomic status and then continue to experience low socioeconomic status right. and then while um, they're pregnant with a child those patterns that are characteristic of low socioeconomic status may be being coded into that child's genome because of the environment and not necessarily because the mother's egg has that is
1: passing it on yeah
2: exactly so it's a lot harder to tell no kidding Mm -hmm. So, so
0: your overall sort of area is called medical genetics. Is everyone in medical genetics doing epigenetics? Or like what What other things might someone in that general field be doing?
2: Right. Um, so no, I there, not everybody does epigenetics. <laughs> I have um, many of my friends who are working on neurological disorders. So two of my hmm. friends are in labs focused on Huntington's disease and other um, friends are working on cancer. And so there's really a large range of projects that people work on. And I would say that a lesser part of the department is focused on that big data area um, that I am focused on. But overall, my um, department is actually quite small. So my cohort went in with only 12 people. And it was genuinely so nice because we got to become really good friends. Throughout oh, first year. Yeah. And everyone there was just so excited about learning about genetics. And we all could contribute our little pieces and pick at each other's brains. So yeah, it was it's really,
1: really cool. cool when you have like that group that you really come together. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's just that like twelve is a good number. It was
2: just right. Yeah, it was just right. Yeah, just right.
1: (laughs) How did you end up end up doing this, uh, Dorothy?
2: Um. So in fourth year, I um. I guess I was under the impression that all fourth year people have to have something lined up immediately after after undergrad. Um, and so I was really surrounded by people who were always asking each other, what are you doing next year? Like, how are your apps going along? Right. Um, it was a very, it was kind of a pressure cooker to do something. And it wasn't that I didn't want to do something or I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it felt like a lot of pressure. But I think I got really lucky and that I, because of that pressure, I somehow, found this lab. And I was a really big fan of that postdocs work who worked on attachment Hmm. style. And so Mm -hmm. I had just emailed the lab and I got an interview and um, I ended up joining the lab and it all happened very, very fast. And I think, I mean, there really isn't any right way to do it. I think I would have loved it just as much if I took a year off or something. But something I realized after joining the program was that I was absolutely the youngest in my program by like a year or two. And it really made me realize that, you know, there's like no rush uh, when you're in fourth year to have something immediately lined up. Um, But I don't regret it. It was still a really good learning experience yeah sorry that was a little off topic but no it's perfect that's what we're here
1: to talk about
2: yeah it wasn't like
1: because yeah when you're in your fourth year you're like i gotta what am i gonna do what's gonna happen like you're it feels like you're about to be shoved out of an airplane and if you don't have that parachute you're just gonna hit the ground
2: totally it was really scary seeing people other people do stuff and feeling like i didn't have something
0: With all that stress, your DNA and methylation is going nuts.
2: (laughs) Nuts. 100%. I always think about that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) My friends and I always
2: joke about that when there is an inconvenience. We just say that our epigenetic age is accelerating. (laughs) (laughs) My methylation. My methylation. (laughs) My (laughs) methylation.
0: And what were you like as a kid, Dorothy? Were you always interested in science? And how did you get into genetics at all? Tell us more about that path, too
2: yeah i mean i don't think that this will be the most fun story but (laughs) i think that i was i was overall pretty happy kid but i started to struggle with my mental health starting around age 10 or 8 but i never did anything about it until Mm -hmm. it reached a breaking point in undergrad and because of that i got really passionate about psychology first of all Mm -hmm. and so psychology was kind of my emotional passion and i've always been interested in biology because my mom would always come back with like science books when i was little they would be little like interactive skeleton books and stuff i always just needed to know why things were happening (laughs) like i was just i always needed to know what was happening um so Kind of my research married was my emotional passion with psychology and my knowledge passion with genetics. Mm-hmm. I kind yeah. of just married that together, which is why I thought social epigenetics was perfect.
1: It's a great like, fit. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Was your undergrad more in psychology then?
2: It actually wasn't. So um, okay. it was very focused on genetics. So hmm. it was actually a lot more molecular, and I I just had a lot of fun fun learning about it.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: like it was just a lot of fun so it's kind of been a continuous journey where I've kind of went from more molecular slowly more into social and I'm kind of at the point where I want to turn even more social to <laughs> more person-centered like psychiatric care yeah yeah so it's really not a straight path that. Yeah. It never is.
1: That's that's the truth. Is and then one of the things that our podcast likes to talk about is that it is. It's not a straight line. Uh, and something that you touched upon that maybe we haven't talked about a lot is like the mental health aspect of of the pressure of going in that straight line. Not just you know sometimes it's parental, sometimes it's pressure we put on ourselves. Yeah. Sometimes it's like just the environment itself is fairly pressure cooked. Uh-huh. Uh, and one thing that I'm noticing is that. Uh, even if maybe the resources provided for grad and undergrad students isn't where we would Ooh. perhaps ideally like it to be there's an, at least an awareness of it that is certainly far greater than when i was doing my grad and undergrad which oh, I, I think is at least it. a great step forward uh just like knowing about it like can we fix it uh, maybe maybe the resources are there maybe they're not but at least we know about it. And I think that's like half the fight right there. And I, it's great that we're making strides. And I think, you know, the hope is as we learn about it and find ways to understand how important it is for both the the institutions that we're, we're studying and the people in them that we need to have resources to address the mental health challenges that we have
2: a hundred percent i think you touch on something so important that's thrown around a lot so stigma and not Mm -hmm. only the fear of stigma from other people but there's a lot of internalized stigma with mental health and that first step is so hard to even admit that something is wrong or admit that maybe your problems are worse Looking into because I mean, that's something I really fought with for a long time is that I didn't, I couldn't see anything in my immediate environment that was totally bad. I was like, right. well, no one in my life has died, yeah. or like, I'm, I am <laughs> right,
1: that's the bar Yeah,
2: or like, I'm being financially <laughs> supported. Like, why should I even be going through mm-hmm. anything? Right. Even though I was like crying myself to sleep every day for oh. no reason. <sighs> um so i think that internalized stigma is a huge huge part and something important that you definitely name and and
0: uh, and talking about it and sharing your story like this is so great because this is what people need to say more you know because when you see high achieving people, you yes. often think that everything is so rosy and they're doing great, right? The more we have people sharing that, no, it was it was like it's legit very tough. hard
1: and painful and we don't know where everybody's coming from and what their story is. And so even if on the outside it looks like they're succeeding, there's people struggling uh in so many different ways. And something that Katie and I talk about a lot is this idea of perfectionism in the sciences mm-hmm. and fear of failure that is, like, really... It drives a lot of people in the sciences to, like, really do incredible things, but at what cost, you know? Like, there's there's a real toll that it takes to feel like I always have to be, like, infallible to a degree. Like, I can't mess things up. And that is not healthy for anybody to... We're humans. We're human beings. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that.
2: It's also, like... Not how science works too for everything to work. <laughs> exactly. For sure. And how boring is that story, yes, how right? Boring. If you think
0: about the stories you share with your friends, right? It's usually like the misadventures, right? That's where the fun is. It's never the oh, we thought it was this, it was this, end of story. Yeah. Right? That's a boring story. A hundred percent.
2: I mean, I can personally speak to that because um, my master's project, all of my results were actually negative. So I had <laughs> zero positive results and for
0: Oh no. For
2: a while I was like <laughs> so scared and terrified for myself. I was asking myself did I do something wrong? Was it like something terribly wrong I did with my analysis? But I looked at my data like super closely and you know, it was definitely definitely null. <laughs> and having learning how to frame that in a discussion Mm -hmm. and like frame that in a story and it was so hard and it kind of made me realize how much of a bias for um positive results there is
1: yes oh my god no no there should be a journal of null results if there isn't already
2: yeah because like some of the like high impact journals are like I, yeah i don't want to name any journals but like <laughs> but there's the there's a bias towards positive results because of the idea that that's the positive results are what is fueling data forward or like fueling findings but yeah i've realized that null results are so important to tell other people where to not Waste their energy. Yeah. Absolutely,
1: wa- not preventing people from How wasting time. How much money
2: are we wasting doing things
1: that the literature things that... says
2: hasn't been done,
1: yeah. but it
0: has been done and it didn't work? But you'll never never know. see.
1: You'll never know.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's why it was a And really that's
1: part of science.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally.
0: What's What's next for Dorothy? Yeah, You're, you've just finished your master's. What are you up
2: to now? Currently, I am actually. I'm trying to finish editing my thesis Mm -hmm. so that i can Mm -hmm. finally submit it and graduate in november and i'll be publishing yeah yay (laughs) i'll be changing that into a manuscript as well to hopefully publish soon which is really exciting it'll be my first ever publication in, in a journal yeah i'm really excited about that and other than that I'll be just taking a break because I've been a student for like 18, 20, yeah. 20 years now straight. <laughs> um, since I was two, Time oh, for I'm break. Yeah, break.
1: that's a long marathon. Yeah.
2: <laughs> since I was two. Um, so yeah, going to take a break cool. and embrace my side gigs as I love to DJ and do crafts.
3: Um, yeah.
2: We're just going to do crafts until I want to start applying for jobs. But long term term, long term goals though I do want to work within my community on youth mental health. That's something that I care a lot about. And also working within the downtown east side and working with populations that are experiencing homelessness and mental health Mm -hmm. resources for populations that are more vulnerable. Um, that's something that I think about a lot every time I like pay therapy just how inaccessible it is um yep. so i really do hope to one day be able to contribute to those accessible resources because yeah just talking to youth and also individuals around this community it really has shown me just how needed it is
1: that's really beautiful dorothy
2: yeah
0: dorothy we're out of time, but thank
1: yeah, you so, thank so, you much so much for being
0: here, sharing your research and your personal and stories. The stories. Yeah, uh, we have no doubt the mark you'll leave, the methylation you'll leave on society, <laughs> the positive methylation. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. you'll leave on society. Hopefully,
2: it's positive methylation. Yeah, and <laughs> Definitely. look,
1: null, null results are good results too. Yeah, totally. I
2: think that should be the mantra that we should take away. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Listeners, Dorothy got her master's with uh, the null results. You can too. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Wait, right,
1: thank so you Dorothy. Dorothy thank
2: you
0: wow that was very cool is this your first time learning about epigenetics I, know, I knew today? nothing
1: I knew <laughs> nothing about this I knew, I knew DNA stuff like you learn in, in in high school and, yeah, yeah. and and some stuff that I kind of read and from living iceberg. on my with a biologist right. but yeah epigenetics is a whole other it's thing it's a whole thing a, a cr- amazing crazy field
0: yeah yeah very much so well
1: How I'm gonna, gonna be listeners? I'm gonna be worried about my methylation now <laughs>
0: Oh my god. My methylation as a high stress person is bananas. <laughs> Just
1: day after day.
0: Uh, I did get carded at the casino recently, so I look young. Yes. Methylation, of be a damned. Year yeah,
1: old. methylation of a Yeah, methylation of a. Yeah. Yeah, you look you look old enough to I be carded, great. but your genetics. Yeah. yeah epigenetics. I've
0: been preserved in methyl groups. <laughs> Um, that's all the time that's we it. have. Thank you, Vinny.
1: Thank you, Katie.
0: Thank you, Dorothy. We learned so much today yes. about urinals. Yes. Rats. Rats and their playfulness. The hand game. And of course, epigenetics. Yes.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Send, a, send yeah. Our, our, our viewers, our listeners out on our socials, Ben.
1: Yeah. If you're interested uh, in following us on social media, check us out on TikTok, on Facebook, on Instagram, and what used to be Twitter, at LRGPod. That's at LRGPod. Also YouTube. Oh, yeah. YouTube. We have a YouTube channel now. You can look up Learn Real Good out there. Uh, and we have our, we've spliced off our science facts into a fun little listening series. So if you haven't listened to series one, that's what's going up every so often on our YouTube channel.
0: And what about for listeners who are grad students and want to be guests?
1: Hey, if you're a listener and you're a grad student in the STEM fields and would love to be a guest, why don't you email us, reach out to us. We love having you on. You're getting
0: higher and higher. At
1: learnrealgoodpodcast.gmail.com. That's learnrealgoodpodcast.gmail.com. Just send us an email and we'd love to talk to you.
0: Sounds good. See you next time, folks.
1: See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.